0: Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television, join millions of viewers for subjects like The 16 Personalities Expressed as Characters, Did Home Alone, Rowan John Hughes's Career, The Greatest Movie Never Made, and How Jackie Chan Creates Perfection Through Failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. To honor his immigrant parents, Bao Quinn thought he was going to become a lawyer. As a small child, he worked in his father's shop behind the register he spent his time between customers sketching and drawing what he now sees as storyboards. Working as a director and cinematographer since 2009, he worked on projects like We're Gonna Be Alright and Live from New York before tackling his largest project to date, a documentary about the personal life of icon Bruce Lee. The description reads, Rejected by Hollywood, Bruce Lee returned to Hong Kong to complete four films, charting his struggles in two worlds B. Water explores questions of identity and representation through rare archive intimate interviews and his own writings. In this interview, Bao talks about his father's secret dream to become an architect, why he avoided talking heads for the film, why documentarians should seek humility, how to account for every frame in a doc, and how he went about humanizing the iconic Bruce Lee. I
1: originally didn't think I could be a filmmaker because my parents um, were Vietnamese war refugees. And, you know, as a child of immigrants, child of refugees, I always felt like I had to find like a stable career, right? Because they had made that sacrifice to like leave their homeland and, and go to an entirely new country. Um, And so I, yeah, I was going to become a lawyer for a long time and, but I always had this like urge for visual art and visual storytelling. Um, my parents owned like a small shop as um, as immigrants and I worked in that shop starting at the age of five and I remember this is like the late 80s so I didn't have like an you know iPad or my parents didn't give me any sort of like toys or anything to keep me occupied. As a five-year-old I, I was getting a bit antsy working in a in a store all day and so um I, you know, it was a fabric store and my older sister cut the fabric and she wrote out like these receipts on these, on these pieces of paper. And so I was a cashier and um, the customers would, you know, hand me the fabric and hand me their their ticket, right? And at first, you know, if you see a little five-year-old Asian boy behind a counter, you're just going to think he's fooling around, right? Um, but I would take the ticket and I would just like ring them up really quickly and I, they would just, you know, their jaw would drop um, but I talk about the story because on the back of these pieces of the paper, there was just blank pages. Right. And so I ended up just drawing, sketching all day long, um, you know, for 10 hours a day, twice, you know, twice a week, every weekend from the age of five to like 13, really. And so that just, um, got me into to visual storytelling and, and looking back at it now, Obviously at the time I did I was just sort of like passing time, killing time, right? Um, but when I look back at it now, is it basically storyboarding. All those pieces of paper were like their own scenes. And, you know, once I sort of like drew as much as I could on one piece of paper, I'd turn it over to the next one and and they would turn into like mini stories and mini like myths in a way. Um and so yeah, that just got me into to storytelling and um, I, after, I went to NYU undergraduate, um, but I didn't go to Tisch um, because I thought, you know, there's just like mythology and filmmaking that you have to kind of pick up like a super eight camera when you're like six years old and make your first film and or work like in a, at a video store when you're 12 and just have an encyclopedia knowledge of film. And I didn't have that, or I, at least I didn't think I had it. Again, I look back, and when I was nine, I, I made my first short film, and I, I didn't think of it as a short, short film because it was like a class assignment. It was a, um, you know, fourth grade. They asked us to like try to sell a product, which is such a, you know, American capitalist education. Um, but it was supposed to be a written assignment, and for some reason, I don't know what you know motivated me, inspired me, but I borrowed my neighbor's like VHS camcorder, and I directed a commercial. Um, but I just, at the time I just thought I was doing a class assignment. I didn't think I was making a short film. Uh, so yeah, you know, fast forward to when I went to NYU, I was still studying to be a lawyer. Um, but every opportunity I had, I took classes at Tisch, you know, every elective. I wouldn't tell my parents that I was taking electives at Tisch. Um, but again, it just kept my sort of creative juices going, um, and yeah, that, I mean that was sort of the heart of the kind of genesis of my filmmaking and just my um, love for visual storytelling.
0: So you, you, did you sort of had this like alternate path? Your parents thought you were doing the whole time, I guess. What what was that leading towards? Like,
1: yeah, not- <laughs> I think they st- <laughs> they still think I'm on that path, right? <laughs> maybe. Um, but yeah, yeah, they they were again they're they're immigrants, so they just kind of what happens sometimes with immigrant parents is that they leave it up to the system in a way the institutions to take care of education it's not like you know in sort of a more western parental approach would be they would be more involved in in my school activities but my parents were just like okay well we're just going to leave it up to the school and they'll just you know take care of them in terms of education and so they never really they just made sure I got really good grades. If I got bad grades and they would just, you know, be, they would punish me in some way. Um, but they didn't know actually what I was studying. They never became involved in that. And I would just tell them, oh, I'm going to become a lawyer. And I was, and I studied for my LSAT for six months straight, like sat in a room 12 hours a day and just like studied, uh, took practice tests. And, um, but when I, uh, you know, going back to sort of your first question too, I remember like the day I was supposed to take my LSAT, I um, ended up, you know, sitting in the car looking, you know, just hesitant to turn the key ignition on and just remembering like, is this what I want to do for the rest of my life? Like, do I want to become a lawyer? And it goes back to the idea, you know, this this sort of pathos of being an immigrant son um, that I wanted to honor my parents sacrifice but then I realized like when my dad he would come home late from the store like around like 8 30 9 we have dinner and then by like 10 o'clock we'd finish dinner and he would take out a piece of paper in the kitchen table and he would start sketching and me and my older sister like huddled around him and we we were you know sort of enamored because we never saw him be artistic at all and he, he was drawing and he he um, was drawing architectural sketches and architectural designs, right? And he told us that when he was young in Vietnam, he dreamt of being an architect. But when he came to America, he he couldn't follow that dream because he had to find something that was that could provide sustenance for, for his young family at the time. And so I just thought, I was sitting in my car and I thought, like, is this, yeah, do I want to be a lawyer? Am I going to, like, just do something that? I'm not gonna love just because I think it's stable or or did my parents by coming over here, they gave me the opportunity to really follow something that I did have a passion for and that was filmmaking. And um, so I, you know, from that point on, I I pursued film more full time and I pursued a master's degree in film. Um, I didn't tell my parents I was getting a master's in film. I just told them I was getting a master's, right? And so they were fine as long as I was getting a master's in something. Um, but it, it wasn't, I think, you know, I joke that they don't know what I'm doing now, but they do. And I feel they're proud of me. Like, I remember my first like feature documentary live from New York It opened Tribeca. We had the honor of opening Tribeca, which is such a sort of, um, regal event to say the least, because it's held at the Beacon Theater, which if New Yorkers know, it's like this 3000 art deco theater in the upper, um, upper west side and it's beautiful and um you know these opening night galas are mostly for donors right and they're really expensive tickets they're like 200 300 and i flew my parent my parents um still live in vietnam they moved back to vietnam um and i flew them over and they, my mom was like counting like how many people were in the crowd and then she looked at the ticket price and she was like doing the math and she like, Bao's going to make a lot of money tonight. <laughs> and so I, and I didn't like break it to her that I don't get the entire gross of, of every, you know, screening. Um, but I think that was a funny moment and just like a moment where I could be like, okay, well, she thinks I'm, I'm making good enough money to survive.
0: Let me, so we're going to jump ahead a little bit. I know you made, um, a little bit, maybe less than a dozen short films before you started working on Be Water, but all this like law school and all that, the discipline there, I imagine prepared you for this gigantic archival research. What was the original idea? And then what, how long did it take to get that to a finished pro- product?
1: Well, Be Water, um, it took about five years from conception until our premiere at Sundance in January, 2020 um i think yeah my sort of background in in law and just i i've always been a student of history made me very um sort of um precise in terms of details historical details and wanting to tell bruce lee's story in a historical context i think a lot of narratives about bruce lee they sort of fail to think about the context that he moves through and i think it's so important especially as someone who basically, you know, lived in the margins in a way because he was Asian American in Hollywood in the 1960s. Right. Um, And so that was really important to me. And that helped drive the thesis of the film. You know, it's hard to tell a definitive story of one man's life, any person's life in 90s to minutes. And I was very aware of that when I was starting to make the film. And I was like, well, people there are versions of that story already out there like people can watch um like dragon right the bruce lee story uh which i watched again bef- that was sort of my first entry point into bruce lee in many ways because i that you know i was born after he passed away and i rewatched it right you know f- at for research and then i was like oh my god this is like so hollywood and so contrived i mean it's a story it's made to be a film right and but it wasn't, it's not a historical document. And my film, I wanted to be more of a historical document in a way. Um, and so that that helped sort of, again, drive how the film was shaped. And um, it, it. at the end of the day, you know, I, I hope that the original vision I had for the film is what was presented to audiences.
0: Did you know early on that you were going to use Um, like a fully archival approach as opposed to talking heads like how did you make that decision
1: I've always loved the work of like Asif Kapadia right he did Senna and uh, Amy and I just like the idea when you're talking about uh, a historical figure and trying to speak about them in a more personal and intimate lens really feeling immersed in their world is important Um, and you know, I tend not to love talking head interviews when it comes to stories that are intimate and and especially when you're we're when you're talking retrospectively about a person in many ways because you have you're talking about someone in the say in the 1960s in the case of this film in the case of Be Water and they're like 20 years old and then you cut back to a a nice shot interview that's like you know hd or 4k uh, of someone who's 80 and you you know that just sort of jolts you right um for me cinema is about in many ways it's it's a lot of things to me but immersion is very important to me feeling immersed in in what you're watching and so it was a decision from from the beginning for me i didn't tell my producer that because she would have been just like, oh, we'll save so much money because we'll just do audio interviews. But I I think, you know, you lose a lot of uh, of sort of emotional, like emotional content, to quote Bruce Lee, um, if you just do audio interviews. And I knew at the ending, I wanted to see everyone's face. I wanted to sort of like come full circle into the present day with Bruce Lee's story. I think um, when you see, you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, when you see like, uh, Linda Lee Codwell when she's like in her 70s, but we've been seeing her in the film basically in her 20s and 30s. When you see her at the end, there's like this sense of poignancy I find when you might think like, what would Bruce Lee look like when he, today, right? What would he look like in his 80s? And, and so it was really important for me that there, there's an intention for every single frame. That's just how I work as a filmmaker.
0: Does that limit anything in terms of maybe some of the people you reached out to, like the people want to be on film? Like, how How do you kind of phrase that building trust permission stage when you're approaching your subjects?
1: I think humility is really
0: important as a filmmaker. You know, I think there's a,
1: again, this image of a filmmaker knowing everything. And I think within themselves, they should have a pretty good idea of what they want, but also, especially in the documentary form, uh, documentary and film should be sort of a sense of discovery. You wanna discover along with the audience. So I, I personally don't make films about subjects that I'm like really well versed in. I mean, I know Bruce Lee obviously, but I didn't know his full story. And I think by asking those questions And having that curiosity while i was making the film it comes across when you're watching the film as an audience too i want to be on the same sort of trajectory as the audience and i think there was a sense of sincerity when i was talking about the perspective of the asian american perspective um with bruce lee's story and i think that was new for many people who were being interviewed and um i mean it took time to be honest like five years is uh Kind of long and short time to make a documentary, I guess depends on the subject. But it's spent I spent like three, three and a half to four years building those relationships first. Because I also know that I am not just a storyteller, but in a way I'm taking care of these stories. These are people's stories that they hold on to. It's part of their lives. And I don't ever want it to be transactional, right? It's maybe they'll only have one opportunity to tell their story. And it's, I I take it as a privilege to be able to tell it. And so, um, you know, I think that helps build a more humanistic connection and relationship with the people I'm interviewing and and who the film is about.
0: Does that also mean, so it sounds like you still did a lot of interviews in person or were you like over the were you in person for those? Or? Yeah, this is, I mean, this is
1: pre-COVID, so you can actually see people. And I mean, it was, it was important for me too in the research process to go to all the places that Bruce Lee lived in. And um, it's like sort of like trace back his steps, um, having to, you know, as I was mentioning earlier, making sure that the film felt immersive meant going to the places that he lived in and, and seeing this sort of footprint on these places. And so, yeah, we interviewed everyone in person. And I mean, they were long interviews, like two to three hours a person. And knowing that at most they'll be in the film for like 10 minutes. And, um, but I, I, again, it was a privilege to be able to talk with people who knew Bruce Lee as just Bruce, right? These stories, it's just like mythic for us who don't know Bruce Lee personally, but to everyone else, it's just like, you know, sort of like, just talking about a friend talking about a brother talking about a husband and it, it helps again humanize bruce lee because for the longest time bruce lee has just been um a, like a demigod to many people
0: were there any um maybe things you learned that were really surprising or powerful but maybe didn't fit in the arc of the film that you can share like anything that like oh, i wish this made sense to put this in there but it doesn't quite make sense
1: um, I mean, I made sure the things that were really powerful were in there and poignant. Um, I, It's sort of the silly things that would be sort of lighten the conversation, lighten the film that I didn't put in, because the film, I wanted to make sure that there's a sense of gravitas to Bruce Lee's story, not, you know, with the music, with the imagery of cinematography, it was all like, this is a Bruce Lee film that's not going to like focus on like sort of the campiness of of like martial arts films and and sort of you know the 70s and the 60s it was it's a story about a it's a tragedy right and so I wanted to make sure like the again the like the pathos of the film was that um but uh, I mean there's a funny story that I got from I forgot who told me I think it was like Sylvia his like childhood friend who came to visit him one day and Um, he was working out and he's such a multitasker that he had a sandwich in one hand and then a dumbbell in the other, and he would just alternate. And so I was like, he must have really fast metabolism. if That's how he's working out.
0: Um, so tell me a little about the, like your own confidence, or if you had any like imposter syndrome, taking on something like this. I mean, this is like one of the top three or four guys of all time, you know, when did you feel confident Are you, or did you just always kind of relate back to like honoring Bruce? Like, how did you kind of think about that through that five-year phase?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was definitely felt like a burden in many ways, right? A weight that I was carrying, especially as an Asian American, right? Because he's an Asian American icon. I mean, he's a, he's a world icon, a global icon, but I think because... Uh, you know, I believe I was the first Asian-American to direct a feature documentary about him. There was a, it was a heavier you know, load to lift in, in, in many ways. Um, but at the same time, I, I sort of like transformed the idea of this burden into a privilege. I'm priv- I have the privilege to tell the story of Bruce Lee. Like, no, not many people have that. And I think because I saw it as a privilege, it, it obviously made it a lot easier. But, you know, making the film and, and showing it, especially at Sundance and then on ESPN, there was some anxiety because I was just worried that, you know, did I do the community right in a way? Um, and I've been really honored by the response because the community has come out and supported the film and supported me and have been really, uh, it's been overwhelming to say the least. And, um, you know, it's, I, 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 I like dealing with sort of American icons, but looking at them more honest and not, you know, honest for my eyes, but more personal lens. And I think, you know, we, as filmmakers, we, we find meaning in all stories and, and Bruce Lee's story is obviously a, a, a big one and something that people have connection to, but how do you make it personal, right? Because if one of the sort of greatest compliments I've gotten about the film, and this is before Sundance, we did sort of a small screening for um, just like a final cut screening to make sure there weren't any small f- errors. And um, this woman who works in the film industry, you know, she consults for Sundance and she said, you know, no one else could have made this film now. Like this, this is your film. And that's the type of films that I want to make, right? I, there's a as a director, you want authorship over your film, um, and and when I heard that, I knew like the approach that I took was was the right one at least for this film, and, and it showed. And so I I the, the anxiety kind of got lifted from from that one comment, right? And that's all I needed in many ways.
0: So what were the logistics of this going to ESPN? Did they buy it at a festival? Because it's not a typical thirty for thirty like we've seen before this
1: yeah it was um we were shopping it around i mean just the idea at first uh, to different streamers and you know the typical broadcasters and it was actually a tough sell because we didn't have the permission of the family at first and i was sort of um working on other projects at that time and it was like year three and i sort of felt a bit um you know, despondent about this film because it wasn't get it going anywhere. And my producer, Julia Nottingham, she had a relationship with ESPN. And she's like, why don't we like, what about ESPN? And honestly, I, they weren't on any of the lists that I came up with, because as you said, this is not a typical 30 for 30. Um But when I think of 30 for 30s, which is a series I've always admired and loved, you know, the best films have been the ones where sports is just sort of a context, right? To, to a more intimate story or to a story that talks about society or race, like, you know, obviously like OJ made in America, isn't about football necessarily. It's about more than that. And that's the type of film that I wanted to make about Bruce Lee. It's not about martial arts, right? Um, It's about a man kind of moving through a country that wouldn't accept him. And what, that meant for him and in a community in many ways. Um, and the ESPN, you know, to their credit, they jumped on board and they were down to to work with me um, just from a treatment, right? And, um, you know, another compliment that I, I would say I get or that the highest compliment, one of the highest compliments is the, you know, one of the development heads at ESPN, Adam Newhouse, you know, told me recently, like, you know the treatment that you submitted for Be Water is almost—it's like ninety-five percent what the film is, and that's that just shows, like, you know, that you had the vision for the film from the start, and um, and I, I owe it to them in a way for trusting me to execute that vision, and they were great to work with.
0: Mm-hmm. How did you so I've asked a few documentary filmmakers this recently because it's something I didn't really realize is that when you're you're trying to sell a documentary, you have to turn in something like a bibliography of permissions for like almost everything in there, unless some of it's fair use. Did you rely all on your producer, lawyers, archival people, or did you have to do some of that yourself? And how did you go about some of those for making sure we have permission, or did you just kind of I'm going to be creative for a bit and then we're going to figure that stuff out. How did you kind of handle that? Yeah, you had
1: to sort of work in parallel with your producers, right? Because obviously, as a director, you want the best sort of tools you at your disposal to tell the story. And that would cost a lot of money um, given licensing costs. And, you know, I wanted everything. And, you know, um, Warner Brothers footage is not cheap um those are that's where most of the budget goes is for licensing right especially if you know, the film is entirely archival and, and also going back to your question like when did i know it's going to be all interviews it's like or sorry all archival i didn't tell my i would you know the number would keep on changing i would tell my producer i was like oh it's going to be like 50 archival 50 interviews and then as it progressed it turned into like 75 25 and then 90 10 and then basically a hundred. And um, but I, I, you know, again, credits due to we had a great team of archival producers and researchers, and they that's their job is to like license footage and find footage and they know the process. And I sort of just trusted them to do it. But yeah, every single frame has to be accounted for. You know, we, we make these like sort of spreadsheets with like every single time code and every single cut and where, you know, how I many, what the seconds, milliseconds you're using and calculate it all up.
0: That's all, that's the fun part for sure, right?
1: <laughs> I mean, there's some people who love to do it. So
0: I don't, that's why I would never repeat that, do that job. Was the title, I, I think everyone knows the quote by now or, or probably knew it before. Was that always going to be the title or when did you make that decision?
1: That came pretty late in the process. Um, we knew we didn't want to put the word dragon in the film because it was there's just too much like, you know, association with Bruce Lee and the word dragon. And I think we wanted to just be a little more um, modern and contemporary with Bruce Lee's story. Uh, it came, yeah, very, very much towards the end. It was organic. I think sometimes when you're making a film, you, um, you basically make the, the bones of it the meat of it, and then you decide to name it, right, um, when you know what it is, and it came naturally um, in many ways, I mean we had uh, one of our editors who suggested it early on, I was like, okay, it's a- on a list of like 20 but as the film you know, become, became more fully formed, it became obvious like, that that um, name would work, that title would work and also, as you said, it's a very famous saying from him, and I wanted to make sure, sh- I didn't want to put like the name Bruce Lee in the film, in the title, right? And so find something that's very elemental to him, very symbolic to him was important.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the show. If it's your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit my new website for information on the YouTube channel, the blog, the podcast, and my new book, Ink by the Barrel, which takes advice from these 200 plus interviews and more at brockswinson.com. You'll see the link in the show notes. Thanks again.